There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. Oh, man. Well played, Mitt Romney. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Well, I'm not scared and anyway. I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, and 106.7 FM Queso in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in lovely Lancaster. Out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe. Five days a week, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly. FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and of course, Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another crazy, thrilling, exciting, breathtaking, jaw-dropping, action-packed adventure that we call the Bradcast. Uh, we uh, got a lot to get to today, but I want to uh, follow up on an item or two from yesterday's program. Yesterday's program where we uh, uh, covered Super Tuesday, the results, but also the concerns about the results around the country. One of those uh, big concerns uh, that we have a little bit of a follow up on now is uh, <laughs> in this uh, the, the report the results from Chelsea, Massachusetts, in which it showed that Jim Gilmore, who? Jim Gilmore, never heard of him. I know, Jim Gilmore, former Virginia governor who had been running for uh, president on the Republican side. Jim, Gil yes, that Jim Gilmore who dropped out weeks and weeks ago, ended up taking the town of Chelsea, Massachusetts, uh, defeating Trump, defeating Cruz, defeating uh, you know people who are actually still in the race. Not only defeating them, but trouncing them. He received 47% of the vote, according to the summary on election night that was uh, printed out by the uh, voting system that they use in Chelsea, which is a paper ballot system where they optically scan those ballots through a computer. And then those results that, uh, and this happens all over the country. In this case, I believe they use D-Bold. I tried to get more information. Well, more on that in a moment. Um, but th these type of systems are used all across the country. And what happens is they put the paper ballots through the computer. Whatever the computer tells them the results are generally the results. Nobody bothers to check the paper ballots by hand with their eyeballs to make sure that the results are accurate, uh, you know, are actually correct, that they actually reflect the will of the voters. In this case, 
What the computer said was that they reflected the will of the voters, that the voters in Chelsea wanted Jim Gilmore to be the uh, Republican nominee for president of the United States. Now, that was so bizarre and so weird and so ridiculous that uh, officials there you know, were forced to obviously give it another look and make sure that uh, this you know, was correct. And when they reran the ballots now... Uh, they found that, in fact, it was not correct that you'll be shocked to learn. Jim Gilmore did not win the city of Chelsea in Massachusetts. Donald Trump, in fact, won. Now, they have posted new numbers and I tried to get some information on what went wrong. How did uh, how did they get it so uh, terribly wrong? I have yet to hear back from the Chelsea County clerk what the uh, reportedly what the Chelsea clerk had said was that uh, the numbers were just off by one row. <laughs> so, you know, no, nothing to worry. Well, why worry? The numbers were just off by one row. Now, the new summary looks kind of like the original one that Jim Gilmore uh, was shown as winning. Uh, except instead of 366 votes in this city, uh, Jim Gilmore actually received two. <laughs> and uh, the 366 votes that Jim Gilmore was said to have gotten actually appear to have gone to Donald Trump, who received now, according to the uh, latest summary or the last one that I checked late last night, Donald Trump received 400 and. 66 votes instead of 366 votes. All of the other numbers were sort of uh, jumbled around and, uh, frankly, quite different. Even though the totals were the same, both uh, 776 votes in both cases. Any Very bizarre. Very bizarre. And it's less troubling about what happened in Massachusetts than it is for what is happening across the entire country and how these exact same systems were used across are used across the entire country. A lot of people think when, you know, if you, as long as you don't have a touchscreen voting machine, everything is OK. Well, no, here's the news. Everything is not OK. Not unless people actually bother to check those paper ballots to make sure they actually reflect the will of the voters. This one we noticed because it was so insane. Another one that we noticed because it was so insane was back in 2014 up in Wisconsin. The, uh, the state of uh, Stoughton, Wisconsin, where some 5,350 5, voters were known to have voted in that city, in Dane County, Wisconsin. But just 16 of those voters apparently were interested in voting for a local ballot referendum calling for an amendment to the U.S. Constitution to help overturn Citizens United. At least that was according to the results reported by the paper ballot optical scan systems up in Stoughton, Wisconsin. They showed that uh, more than 5,000 people had voted but only 16 voted on that referendum. Now, we later came to learn when it was called to light and people said, wait a minute, this is not right. The Stoughton clerk up there told us that uh, a malfunction with the voting machines in Stoughton on Tuesday led to an incomplete outcome of the city's referendum on whether to amend the U.S. Constitution. They ended up rerunning the ballots. Actually, I, th I believe they counted them by hand at that point. And they found out that, in fact, no, it wasn't only 16 people who voted on that referendum. In fact, the referendum wildly passed by a huge margin with 4,440 yes votes versus 
just 992 no votes. But again, that was something that we noticed. And when I posted about this Jim Gilmore situation yesterday, when we posted the show at uh, at bradblog.com and over in Daily Coast, etc., I received some comments. Well, one in particular saying, hey, the system worked as expected. We found it. We noticed the problem. Well, we noticed it in this case because it was Jim Gilmore. And we noticed it in the Stoughton, Wisconsin case because it was so obviously wrong that more than 5,000 voters came and voted that day, but only 16 registered votes in this in this referendum. So how many times do we not notice? How many times are a few numbers moved from one candidate to the other for whatever reason? And I'm not charging there's somebody out there trying to commit fraud, although we know that it is quite easy for particularly for an election insider to be able to do to take a few use a few keystrokes to change the results if they wish or accidentally screw up the results by misprogramming the uh, the the optical scan system, the tabulators. If you don't check the ballots to find out if they were counted accurately, there is no way of knowing if they actually were. So how often does this happen accidentally and nobody notices where, you know, oh, a, a candidate gets a few thousand more than they're supposed to or a few thousand left less than they're supposed to? We don't know. That is a concern, don't you think? Um, <laughs> although often it seems like I'm the only one who's concerned about this. I don't really get it. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say that. There's a lot of people who are concerned. I hear from a lot of people. I heard after uh, yesterday's show about a concern in Roanoke, Virginia, where uh, on election night it showed that uh, in the race between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton on Super Tuesday in Roanoke, it showed 100% reporting, showed... Bernie Sanders winning 3,361 votes to Hillary Clinton's 3,323 votes. Pretty close, but Sanders wins 50% to 49%, according to the results that were posted on the Roanoke website and elsewhere that night. Well, then there were updated numbers that came later in the night, showing once again Hillary Clinton with the same 3,323 votes, except... About 600 votes disappeared for Bernie Sanders. In, uh, in these results, which now appear to be the final or near final results, uh, Bernie Sanders lost some 600 votes. He, he was showed as having a total of 2,760. That's off just, what, uh, about 601 votes off of what was reported to be his total back when 100% of precincts were reporting on election night. Again, someone noticed this, sent this in, had a concern about it. I checked with Judith Stokes, who is the Roanoke County, Virginia general registrar. She tells me the email. She says the officers of elections call in the unofficial results when the polls close. So they call in. Uh, they're not transmitted by the Internet. They're not transmitted automatically. They actually call in and say, Here's, here, here are the numbers we have at this precinct. And she says, we key in those numbers into a spreadsheet uh, at, the, uh, at the county headquarters and into the Department of Elections website. She says, after all numbers are entered, we compare totals as a double check, but we discovered a number was entered wrong on the website and it was corrected at that point. 
Human error is the explanation, she says. The Electoral Board canvassed the election yesterday, and the official total for Clinton is, in fact, 3,000, what is she say, 3,325. That's almost what they had, two extra votes. And the official total for Sanders is 2,760. Indeed, 600 votes less than was reported uh, earlier on their website. She says, we have a few provisional ballots that may or may not be counted on Friday, etc. Thank you for contacting me. So that is the explanation about what happened in Roanoke for those who have been writing in to ask me about that one. You may accept the explanation or not. I leave it to you. All I'm doing is that we report, you decide, as they say over at Fox News. Uh, If you spot anything else like that, and uh, errors do tend to come up long after election night, the next day, the following day, the following week, the following month, feel free to let me know. I'm Bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find me on the Twitters at TheBradBlog, also over at Facebook. Okay. So that's what we have uh, for that for now. Uh, coming up, lot lot to go on this show today, uh, including Desi Doyen and our latest Green News report. Desi Doyen, how are you today? I'm good. All right. We got a news volcano today. A news, Another news volcano. Yes. We always do. And I should get to it. I, I should note in our Green News report coming up, a very bizarre story. Yes. Uh, concerning the CEO of Chesapeake, Chesapeake Oil. Chesapeake that, Energy. Ch- Chesapeake Energy. Uh, one of these uh, big oil guys uh, who was indicted on conspiracy charges. And when you started to work to put together the report, the the latest Green News report, I know you were going to report that news because it was a big story in and of itself. Yes. And then the next day. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. It got he, he... considerably bigger. Yes. Don't give it away. Okay. We'll wait for those people who don't know. Um, so uh, that and, uh, frankly, a whole lot more in our upcoming Green News report. We will look forward to that. Let's see. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, our guest coming up today. Uh, we'll talk about the one defining character since Donald Trump is in the news like crazy today. Of course, every day he is these days. But. Uh, There is apparently one defining characteristic that is most predictive of whether someone will be a Trump supporter or not. And it's not what you may think. It's not necessarily uh, education, racism, uh, economic concerns. We will talk about that with my guest coming up. Uh, which gets, uh, well, I wouldn't say all science-y, but not really. Political science. It, uh, because they have been able to identify the one predictor, the one thing that most reliably determines if you, yes, you, will be a, uh, a Donald Trump supporter. So we will get to that. Uh, speaking of someone who is no longer a Donald Trump supporter... An extraordinary uh, day, I think, (laughs) this morning when Mitt Romney, I mean, the Republicans are now in full panic mode. That much is clear. And you know that, of course, when they haul out Mitt Romney to try to do something about what is going on in their party. (laughs) Mitt Romney, who could not win in 2012, who got thumped, frankly, They are now turning to him as the savior. No, not yet, anyway, to be the candidate, but to come out and uh, uh, try to cut the knees out from under Donald Trump. I don't know if it is going to work, 
But I don't know that I've ever heard a speech uh, quite like this, at least not from an actual candidate. Here was here. And we'll play this an extended clip if we can. Uh, Mitt Romney speaking today at the Hinckley Institute at the University of Utah in what was billed a special address. Mitt Romney on the 2016 election, but clearly it was Mitt Romney trying to beat the crap out of Donald Trump. Let me put it very plainly. If we Republicans choose Donald Trump as our nominee, the prospects for a safe and prosperous future are greatly diminished. Let me explain why I say that. First on the economy. If Donald Trump's plans were ever implemented, the country would sink into prolonged recession. A few examples. His proposed 35% tariff-like penalties would instigate a trade war, and that would raise prices for consumers kill our export jobs, and lead entrepreneurs and businesses of all stripes to flee America. His tax plan, in combination with his refusal to reform entitlements and to honestly address spending, would balloon the deficit and the national debt. So even though Donald Trump has offered very few specific economic plans, what little he has said is enough to know that he would be very bad for American workers and for American families. But you say, wait, 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 isn't he a huge business success? Doesn't he know what he's talking about? No, he isn't. And no, he doesn't. His, his bankruptcies have crushed small businesses and the men and women who work for them. He inherited his business. He didn't create it. And whatever happened to Trump Airlines? How about Trump University? And then there's Trump Magazine and Trump Vodka and Trump Steaks and Trump Mortgage. A business genius, he is not. <laughs> now, now, let me turn to national security and the safety of our homes and loved ones. Mr. Trump's bombast is already alarming our allies and fueling the enmity of our enemies. Insulting all Muslims will keep many of them from fully engaging with us in their urgent fight against ISIS. And for what purpose? Muslim terrorists would only have to lie about their religion to enter the country. And then what he said about and 60 Minutes, did you hear this? It was about Syria and ISIS, and it has to go down as the most ridiculous and dangerous idea of the entire campaign season. Let ISIS take out Assad, he said, and then we can pick up the remnants. Now think about that. Let the most dangerous terror organization the world has ever known take over an entire country? This recklessness is recklessness in the extreme. Now, Donald Trump tells us that he is very, very smart. <laughs> I'm afraid that when it comes to foreign policy, he is very, very not smart. <laughs> Dishonesty is Donald Trump's hallmark. He claimed that he had spoken clearly and boldly against going into Iraq. Wrong. He spoke in favor of invading Iraq. He said he saw thousands of Muslims in New Jersey celebrating 9-11. Wrong. He saw no such thing. He imagined it. He's not of the temperament of the kind of stable, thoughtful person we need as leader. His imagination must not be married to real power. There's plenty of evidence that Mr. Trump is a con man, a fake. Mr. Trump has changed his positions, not just over the years, for three days in a row. We will only really know if he's a real deal or a phony if he releases his tax returns 
and the tape of his interview with the New York Times. I predict that there are more bombshells in his tax returns. I predict that he doesn't give much, if anything, to the disabled and to our veterans. I predict that he told the New York Times that his immigration talk is just that, talk. And I predict that despite his promise to do so, first made over a year ago, that he will never, ever release his tax returns. Never. Not the returns under audit, not even the returns that are no longer being audited. He has too much to hide. Nor will he authorize the release of the tapes that he made with the New York Times. I understand the anger Americans feel today. In the past, our presidents have channeled that anger and forged it into resolve, into endurance and high purpose, and into the will to defeat the enemies of freedom. Our anger was transformed into energy directed for good. Mr. Trump is directing our anger for less than noble purposes. He creates scapegoats of Muslims and Mexican immigrants. He calls for the use of torture. He calls for killing the innocent children and family members of terrorists. He cheers assaults on protesters. He applauds the prospect of twisting the Constitution to limit First Amendment freedom of the press. This is the very brand of anger that has led other nations into the abyss. Here's what I know. Donald Trump is a phony, a fraud. His promises are as worthless as a degree from Trump University. He's playing the members of the American public for suckers. He gets a free ride to the White House, and all we get is a lousy hat. Wow. Wow. That was uh, Mitt Romney at the Hinckley Institute at the University of Utah today. He did not actually endorse anybody else. It might have made sense had he been endorsing someone. He was actually uh, basically endorsing anybody who is not Donald Trump on the Republican side. He said, go vote for Rubio, go vote for uh, Kasich, go vote for Cruz. Yeah, he was saying that if you are in a specific state, then vote for the person who is most likely to win to against Trump, Donald whoever Trump. that might be. In other words, he's setting up chaos at the Republican convention. Well, he's also, uh, you know, he could have been endorsing Hillary Clinton or help Bernie Sanders at that rate. Now, it should be noted, by the way, uh, John McCain came out shortly thereafter and said, I agree with Mitt, essentially, in his statement. But back in uh, in 2012, Mitt Romney was singing the praises of Donald Trump after uh, he received Donald Trump's endorsement. Uh, do we have time for it? Go ahead, play it real quick. Donald Trump has uh, shown an extraordinary ability to understand how our economy works, to create jobs for the American people. He's done it here in Nevada. He's done it across the country. He understands that our economy is facing uh, threats from abroad. He's one of the few people who stood up and said, you know what, China has been cheating. They've, uh, they've taken jobs from Americans. They haven't played fair. I spent my life in the private sector, not quite as successful as this guy, but uh, <laughs> successful nonetheless. So I want to say thank you to Donald Trump for his endorsement. It uh, means a great deal to me. So were you lying then, Mr. Romney, or are you lying now? Just incredible. But I guess it underscores that what? Politicians will say anything they need to? Uh, oddly enough, I'm not sure. We'll have to find out. But I'm not sure that uh, Romney's uh, absolute blistering speech against Donald Trump, calling him a phony and a fraud and outlining 
uh, frankly, his authoritarian tendencies will actually do anything to hurt Mitt Romney, uh, to hurt Donald Trump. It actually may help him. We'll see, because there's a lot of people who really respond as we've seen, uh, to exactly what it is that uh, Donald Trump is selling and that Mitt Romney just helped him underscore on television for about 15 minutes uh, this morning. And then Donald Trump, for his part, came out, called Mitt Romney's speech long and rambling, and then went on to give a way longer uh, and much more rambling speech in response. I think he went on for about 27 minutes uh, going back after Mitt Romney. So uh, and of course, all the cable uh, stations carried the entire thing live. So, you know, there you go. You're welcome, Mr. Donald Trump. (sighs) Yes, they love this stuff. But what do they love the most about Donald Trump? What is the most predictive quality for a Donald Trump supporter? We're going to take a quick break and we will come back and talk about that with my guest, Jonathan Weiler, right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Dark days indeed. Uh, You you heard uh, Mitt Romney's remarks before the break about Donald Trump. And as I noted, Donald Trump responded in kind during a campaign event in Maine shortly thereafter. The uh, brutal critique from uh, Romney earlier in the day. Trump was almost immediately interrupted by protesters, as he almost always is now. During his campaign rallies, uh, by my count, Trump was interrupted uh, by at least three different times during his remarks today. And as usual, when that happens, his security guards remove the protesters physically as the crowds chant and, and Trump kind of eggs them on. Here's one example of one of those moments from uh, just a couple of days ago, I believe. Oh, get out of here. Get out of here. Look at these people. Get out of here. Get out. Out. Out! Out! Get out! Creepy. The uh, crowd, of course, loves it at these uh, Trump rallies. And uh, in a similar vein, a day or two ago, Trump's Secret Service contingent reportedly removed a whole bunch of African-American students at an event at Valdosta State University in Georgia before the event even began. 
The students were at their own school, which had been a whites-only school until 1963. They hadn't protested, and they say they had no plans to, but they were removed anyway. And uh, most disturbingly, perhaps, the media hardly seems to have noticed, and the matter uh, seems to be quite normal now for what folks come to expect from these Trump rallies and from his campaign in general. Now, we saw a similar sort of filtering of crowds at rallies during appearances by George W. Bush and Dick Cheney during their administration. But we seem to be, I think, reaching new levels during this campaign, including forcing reporters and media into pens at these Trump events. Uh, an, an incident was caught on camera earlier this week when a purported Secret Service uh, man on Trump's detail was seen grabbing a photographer by the throat, throwing him to the ground. That made headlines for about two minutes. In the meantime, Trump supporters seem to have no problem with any of this. In fact, the tougher Trump gets against protesters, immigrants, anybody who who he says he doesn't like, the more his supporters seem to love him. This is all becoming quite normalized now, it seems. And uh, quite chilling, to me at least, it's a chilling atmosphere that we now seem to be heading into here in America with little notice or concern, frankly, all of which underscores a fascinating study and article about it that I came across not long at not long ago at Politico, uh, where longtime political consultant turned Ph.D. candidate in uh, in political science at UMass Amherst, uh, Matthew McWilliams filed a fascinating article headlined The One Weird Trait That Predicts Whether You're a Trump Supporter. The article begins, If I asked you most what defines Donald Trump supporters, what would you say? They're white? They're poor? They're uneducated? You'd be wrong, he writes. In fact, I've found a single statistically significant variable predicts whether a voter supports Trump, and it is not race, income, or education levels. McWilliams' case, based on some hard political science survey data, was fascinating and uh, more than a bit chilling when I read it originally. We contacted uh, Matthew to join us on the program to talk about it. He was not able to. Instead, he pointed us to the man who first developed this thesis that he says much of his current research is based on. Jonathan Weiler joins us now to pick up the case and explain how both uh, McWilliams' uh, troubling research and his own are being underscored by what is going on with this Donald Trump campaign. Jonathan received his Ph.D. in political science from UNC Chapel Hill, where he's a faculty member in global studies. He's written three books, among them with Mark Hetherington, Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics, he also writes for Huffington Post and blogs about sports media. Well, that's probably more fun these days at the ESPN Watch. Uh, Professor Jonathan Weiler, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's so good to have you here. Okay, so if the one trait that predicts whether you're a Trump supporter is not race, economic, or education level... What is it, as McWilliams's work and your own work seems to confirm, Jonathan? Yeah, so the, the, the trait that Matt is talking about and the trait that uh, Mark Hetherington and I first wrote about seven years ago mm-hmm. is authoritarianism. Uh, it's an old psychological concept in the social sciences, and for a variety of reasons, it kind of fell into disfavor for a few decades. But 
we came to believe about 10 years ago that it explained a lot about just the intensity of polarization and political division in the United States. And the Trump campaign, I think, in a lot of ways is the kind of the apotheosis or the, the culmination of that of that new reality. Well, you say it came into disfavor for for a while for some reason. I'm guessing it was World War II that uh, brought disfavor upon author- authoritarianism. Uh, well, in this well the, the theory and the idea of authoritarianism to explain why people would support you know, fascist leaders was mm-hmm. developed after World War II. Mm. And then in like the 60s and 70s, uh, without boring you with kind of methodological issues, I think a lot of people just felt like, well, okay, sure, there was mass support for fascism, but that's not relevant to democracies, really, mm. um, because democracies don't believe in those kinds of things. Um, but over the past 15 or 20 years, I think more and more people have become interested in what authoritarianism can explain about politics in places like the United States. And we really came to believe, Mark and I did, that it was at the center of what was dividing our political parties and our political system. And that was, of course, long before the rise of Donald Trump. That Your book was originally back in uh, 2009, I believe it was published. All right, what... what uh, Jonathan Weiler, what actually is authoritarianism? And I know that uh, you and uh, uh, Matt McWilliams went through and were able to identify these traits in people using actual science. And I want to talk about that methodology actually in a bit. But uh, what actually is the definition of authoritarianism, at least in your context uh, for your research and, and your book and so forth? Yeah, well, so the, the way that um, Mark and I wrote about it is that authoritarianism is it, there's a few things that really define it, that characterize high authoritarians. High authoritarians tend to think about the world in very black and white terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, high authoritarians tend to dislike or feel uncomfortable with ambiguity and complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, and high authoritarians tend to uh, dislike or feel uncomfortable with outgroups, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, African-Americans or gays or Muslims or other groups that I would describe as kind of marginal or traditionally disfavored. Is it distinct? Um, so I think those are some of the key components of what we describe as uh, somebody who's high in authoritarianism. Is, is, is it distinct from racism, per se? Uh, in other words, McWilliams says that it's, it's not racism that is the predictor, it's authoritarianism. So how are those two things yeah, different? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, there's, there, there's lots of research out there that shows that if you ask people questions about what's sometimes called racial resentment, mm-hmm. um, you know, you'll see something fairly similar. So, but what I would say about authoritarianism that does distinguish it from, say, racism is I think race and feelings about race and feelings about outgroups are certainly an important component of authoritarianism, but authoritarianism in some ways is more all-encompassing. You know, it's really about order in a much more fundamental and basic sense. And so that's why authoritarians are not only concerned about these marginal groups and how they might upset the social fabric, um, but they're also concerned about changing values when it comes to family and non-traditional relationships. 
Um, and so, the, the, you know, there are considerations beyond race that it, it, seem of fundamental importance it, to authoritarians. Is but there, all of them yeah. really come down to kind of dividing the world into us versus them, mm. you know, in a, in a pretty pronounced way. And that's also distinct from uh, conservatism, what what is now described as conservative. In other words, you'd have a lot of uh, Trump supporters who say, well, I support him because I'm conservative. And then oddly enough... Uh, you, you know, you got Ted Cruz and others saying, well, we are the real conservative. Uh, and in fact, there's, you know, something to underscore that, you know, Donald Trump is calling in many ways for much bigger gov- uh, government, uh, you know, spending more and so forth, which would seem to be the opposite of small government conservatism. But again, uh it's a different it's a different thing, right? Conservatism versus authoritarianism. Yeah, that, 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 yeah that's right, Brad. I mean, I think it really is important here. There, there is no question that there is in the American context mm-hmm. there is a connection between authoritarianism and conservatism. But Trump is illustrating really well how the two things are not one and the same, and in part for precisely the reasons that you identified. You know, Trump is really in important ways, at least rhetorically broken with Republican orthodoxy on economic policy. And, you know, we found in our book that authoritarians weren't particularly interested in the conservative economic agenda. They were not necessarily in favor of small government or lower taxes. The pieces of what has become modern Republicanism that really attracted them are more these kind of us versus them issues. And so Trump, in a really interesting way, has zeroed in quite precisely on what authoritarians care about and on what they don't care about. And so in that way, yes, he's absolutely, he and his followers, I think, are distinct in some important ways from conservatism. Okay, now, to be clear, you're not, uh, you know, calling these people uh, names, you're not calling them uh, fascist, Nazis, whatever. You you actually, you go about this, as did McWilliams in his uh, most recent study, uh, using a rather scientific method to determine whether someone has uh, authoritarian tendencies and and it's not saying, hey, are you an authoritarian? Hey, uh, you know, did you love Mussolini? It's actually a a, a, a bit more clever than that. Explain this methodology, how you come to determine whether somebody is identified in your study as uh, as an authoritarian. Yeah. So the the way that authoritarianism has come to be measured over, you know, the last 20 years or so is by asking people to identify what traits in children uh, they think are most important to have. And so this has become known as the parenting battery. Um, And, you know, so it starts with just a quick preface that says people have different ideas about what's important in raising kids. And then you're asked to choose between pairs of attributes and it's how it's the choices people make between those attributes that tells us whether they're more or less authoritarian. So they don't even know when they're taking these surveys that you you are looking at them for the idea of authoritarianism, whether they want to. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and of course, we're not just, you know, in this regard, we're not just looking at authoritarians. We're looking mm-hmm. at everybody, authoritarians and non-authoritarians and folks in the right. middle, and we're asking these parenting questions in order to try to figure out 
where they sort of fall on the on the scale. So, for example, one of the questions, please tell me which one you think is more important for a child to have respect for elders or obedience. Uh, I'm sorry, respect for elders and obedience versus self-reliance and curiosity versus good manners and so forth. And from that, you can figure out what. Uh, you know, what what their tendency is as far as authoritarianism. Yes. All right. Yes. And you have found then, based on uh, 14 years or so of polling on this question, that authoritarians over the years have steadily moved from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party over time. Do we have any explanation for that move in particular? Yeah, so that's... Uh, yes, exactly. We... Um in 1992, uh, there was really no difference in terms of the level of authoritarianism of the average Democrat and the average Republican. Uh, there were lots of authoritarians in the Democratic Party and lots of non-authoritarians in the Republican Party. And what's happened over the past now quarter of a century um, is what a lot of political scientists call a sorting process, where the non-authoritarians have increasingly gravitated from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party, and a lot of authoritarians have gravitated from the Democratic to the Republican Party. And in a nutshell, um, I mean, I think this has been a long, complicated process that's really played out over 40 years. But it starts with the idea that uh, the Republican Party in the late 1960s is looking for a way to win over New Deal voters. Especially sort of blue collar uh, white voters. And the Nixon campaign settles on the idea of law and order and a not so subtle racialized campaign. Um, and that really, in many ways, becomes the beginning of a much longer process where Republicans focus on race, uh, welfare, crime, uh, disorder in the cities. And then the threat from ERA and women's liberation, and then gay rights, and then terrorism, and all of these issues, as it happens, are the kinds of issues that really engage authoritarians, and really in many ways turn off, I should, I should note, non-authoritarians. Mm. And I just want to clarify something, Brad. Yeah. This is not a conspiracy in that it's not like a bunch of Republican elites got together 40 years ago and said, how can we attract authoritarians to the Republican Party? Right. All they were trying to do, like every politician tries to do, is figure out how to win elections mm -hmm. and to try to come up with issues that they thought could attract you know, a winning coalition of voters. And as it happens, this accumulation of appeals over a long period of time uh, tended in the direction that we're talking about. And so, again, in a nutshell, that's that 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 that's a big part of how we ended up where we are today. And it seems to be a big part of uh, why Republicans are so surprised about this. In other words, uh, you're you're right. It doesn't seem like they said, "Oh, let's you know, let's get all the authoritarians," but they did focus on uh, dividing people, and they did focus on the other, the immigrants, uh, the gays, the you know whoever they could, uh, you know, certainly minorities. Um, and then when all of a sudden people, you know, over the years move to that side and say, yeah, we like that idea. Suddenly 
They seem stunned when a guy like Donald Trump rolls in and starts saying, yeah, I, I agree with you all on that. And that's what I'm running on. I, that's why one of the reasons I'm so amazed that the Republicans are amazed by this. Donald Trump is just doing what it is. They have been, uh, you know, dog whistling for so many years, it seems. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, right, there, there is a way in which, you know, Trump just feels like he's the, he's the Republican id come to life. Yeah. And, you know, in that regard, he is, I think, in many ways, a kind of logical extension of a dynamic that's been underway for a long time. What's interesting, though, Brad, is that as much as the Republicans have moved right, especially on these, you know, sort of us versus them issues, and the Democrats have moved in a different direction, um, you know, even less, even in late, late in George W. Bush's second term as president, mm -hmm. he was trying really hard mm -hmm. to come up with a comprehensive immigration reform bill. Mm. And well, part of what's interesting to me about that is that there's a kind of dance that goes on between elites and their followers. So elites come up with these messages, these us versus them messages, these messages that attract authoritarians, and they cultivate a base. And then that base kind of turns around and says, all right, well, you got our attention and you promised you would deliver on these issues, and now we expect you to. So, you know, the monster, if you will that the Republican Party created was in a very strongly authoritarian base that Donald Trump, whether by instinct or self-consciously, I don't really know, he's been the guy who's really taken advantage of that. I'm speaking with Jonathan Weiler, uh, professor of political science from uh, UNC Chapel Hill, uh, where he's a faculty member in global studies. Uh, Jonathan, uh, you write in... Um, in your recent article at Daily Coast, headlined Understanding Trump, It's the Authoritarianism, Stupid, that as recently as 1992, when Bill Clinton first won the presidency, authoritarian-minded voters were about as likely to vote Democratic as they were to vote Republican. That is no longer the case. What happened? Was there something that changed it? Was it 9-11? You also explained in that same article that under threatening circumstances, for example, after 9-11, non-authoritarians and authoritarians begin to look more alike when, for example, they, they feel threatened. So what happened? What, you know, what, what changed between 92 and Bill Clinton and what we saw after 9-11? And if authoritarians and non-authoritarians begin to look more and more alike, well, what's the difference between the two at that point after an event like 9-11? Well, so I'll answer the second question first. It's a great question. And the answer, at least temporarily, is there may not be a whole lot of difference between them. You know, when, when we are faced with some mortal threat, uh, people tend to, you know, fight or flight. We, we become very defensive and reactive, and we stop thinking and more kind of, you know, there's really no time for subtlety and nuance mm -hmm. after a catastrophic event. And so, you know, I mean, I think that has a few implications, one of which is, and I know that Matt, you know, has talked about this in some of his recent writing, that the ceiling that people talk about for Trump 
maybe a softer ceiling than some people wish it were. The ceiling as far as um, how much support he, you think he can exactly, gather. Exactly, because, yeah. you know, there's uh, under-threatening and fearful and frightening circumstances. Um, mm-hmm. More and more people might find his message appealing. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this goes to an earlier point I wanted to make. You know, you, you said earlier that, you know, the point here, and it's inescapable with this research that, this is going to come across as sounding like it's demonizing certain groups of people, and I, I, I don't try to hide my own political biases. But on the question of who's a good person and who's a bad person, you know, with ordinary folks, um, we're talking about a very human impulse, which is fear and fearfulness. And I do think that some people are on what I sometimes describe as high alert more of the time. Mm-hmm. And I think those folks are more readily inclined to be attracted to a guy like Donald Trump. And, and so the difference between high authoritarians and low authoritarians is that after an event like 9-11, folks are going to start to look more similar. But for mm-hmm. some people, they'll come down from that high alert state much faster than other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll sort of go back to what their kind of baseline was of a a more sort of considered, less ready to want to rip somebody else's throat out way of seeing the world. That would be the non-authoritarians who might share the quality, but after a while they return to their uh, senses, I guess. So in, uh, you know, I've been uh, warning Democrats to be very careful what they wish for when it comes to Trump. A lot of them have, you know, said, oh, this is fantastic for us, but your work seems to offer more reason to support uh, my warning for them to be careful what they wish for, because you suggest there are a lot of self-declared independents and Democrats uh, to whom uh, Trump's brand of authoritarian might well appeal. Uh, M- uh, Matt McWilliams finds 39 percent of independents in his poll uh, who identify as authoritarians, 17 percent of self-identified Democrats who are strong authoritarians. But that's a lot less than uh, 92 when you had a lot more uh, voting for Bill Clinton. And a lot of those people moved since, uh, was it 9-11 that moved uh, people over? Yeah, so so I think, you know, as, as I said earlier, I mean, some of these processes, I think, were underway well mm-hmm. before 92 and just sort of took a while to, you know, fully make themselves felt. But I, I do think, I think 9-11 uh, was certainly... One important factor, I think, um, throughout the 1990s, um, the question of gay rights, for example, began Mm. to be more fully on the agenda, um, and the parties began to be more clearly different on that issue. Um, And so, you know, I think think that the, for a few reasons, we saw a change, maybe more subtle changes between 92 and 2001, and then much more clearly after 2001. Absolutely fascinating. I hope people will uh, well check out your article, of course, uh, Understanding Trump, It's the Authoritarianism Stupid, over at Daily Coast, as well as uh, Matt McWilliams' piece at Politico, uh, The One Weird Trait That Predicts Whether You're a Trump Supporter, or... You could and should go out and buy uh, Jonathan Weiler's book that he wrote with Mark Hetherington, Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics from 2009. Had you read that book years ago, people, 
you wouldn't have been perhaps so surprised by the rise of Donald Trump. Uh, Jonathan, really great to talk to you about all of this. Uh, I, I hope to come up with an excuse to talk to you more as uh, this entire fine mess moves forward, because it's a really fascinating uh, aspect of all of this. Well, well, thanks so much, Brad, and I'm happy to talk to you anytime. Greatly appreciated. Jonathan Weiler, uh, once again, his book, Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics. We're going to take a quick break and come back with more Bradcast. Yes, be afraid, be very afraid. Right after this, I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Bradcast, where we are melting, as usual, for Desi Doyen and the Green <laughs> News Report. Fascinating interview with uh, Jonathan Weiler. Really fascinating uh, and explains a lot. Yes. <laughs> In any event, we have no more time to explain it because we must get to our latest Green News Report. The indictment yesterday uh, it was a very serious charge. It involved uh, up to, I believe, 10 years of jail time. Big oil CEO dies just one day after indictment on conspiracy charges. The bottom line for me is that fossil fuel companies cannot wreck our planet for their short-term profits. Bernie Sanders pledges to stop two more tar sands pipelines. Florida bans fracking ban bans. What? Oregon breaks up with coal. Iowa breaks wind. Wind records, that is. Plus... There are definitely areas where, you know, the Earth is covered with pollution almost all the time. Astronaut Scott Kelly's new perspective on returning to Earth. All of those new perspectives and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Now, I don't know what my Republican colleagues are smoking. Oh, I think you do, Bernie Sanders. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I know when you started working on this story, it was about accountability for a crime. Now, this story has suddenly turned into something quite different. Yes, that's right. Oklahoma City police say that the controversial former CEO of Chesapeake Energy, Aubrey McClendon, died in a single car crash on Wednesday, the day after the Justice Department indicted him on charges of conspiracy to cheat homeowners out of royalties on oil and gas leases. Federal prosecutors alleged that McClendon illegally colluded with another company to rig prices for oil and gas leases in Oklahoma. Oklahoma from 2007 to 2012. McClendon's aggressive leasing tactics were legendary in the fracking industry. And apparently the company itself was cooperating with the uh, with the Justice Department on this? It does appear to be so. Do we know if this was suicide or, or anything else at this point? That certainly has been the speculation. And officials explained that he veered off in traffic and, and went headlong into a bridge? Yes, at a high rate of speed without a seatbelt. Wow, just an amazing story. 
In a surprise move, a Republican-led Florida State Senate committee has voted down a bill that would have banned local communities from banning fracking, the controversial natural gas drilling technique that's been linked to water contamination and earthquakes. The vote means that over 40 local fracking bans may stay in place. That's opposite from most Republican-majority state legislatures across the nation, like Texas, where state legislatures have banned local fracking bans. So why would Florida Republicans want to do this? Usually they are in favor of fracking. It was attached to a bill that would have established a moratorium until a study was completed, and they didn't want to do that. Okay, so instead of killing fracking altogether, they're allowing localities to ban it if they want. Right. Well, I guess that much is a good thing. In presidential politics, Senator Bernie Sanders at a rally in Minnesota came out against two controversial proposed oil pipelines across the state. The pipelines are proposed by Enbridge, the same Canadian company responsible for the billion-dollar Kalamazoo River pipeline spill in Michigan five years ago that still hasn't been cleaned up. Sanders said he'd use the same test that President Obama used to reject the Keystone XL pipeline. He wouldn't approve it if it made climate and our planet more dangerous. Those are exactly the same standards that we need to apply to the Alberta Clipper and the Sandpiper, and that is what I would do as president of the United States. Despite his stance to keep fossil fuels in the ground, Sanders won Super Tuesday contests in the oil states of Oklahoma and Colorado. Oregon breaks up with coal. The Oregon State Legislature this week passed two bills that will phase out the use of coal in the state by 2030 and require utilities to generate half their electricity with renewable energy sources by 2040. Iowa breaks wind, wind records that is. Wind energy in Iowa last year generated more than 31 percent of all electricity in Iowa, making it the first state in the nation to cross the 30 percent renewable electricity mark, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Way to go, Iowa. Finally, NASA astronaut Scott Kelly safely returned to Earth with his Russian cosmonaut colleagues on Tuesday after spending nearly a year orbiting the planet on board the International Space Station. In his final press conference from space, Commander Kelly said his unique vantage point gave him a new outlook on the environment. There are definitely areas where, you know, the Earth is covered with pollution almost all the time. And, you know, it's not good for any of us. And, uh, you know, there are weather systems that I've seen while I was up here that were in places that were unexpected, storms, you know, bigger than, uh, you know, we've seen in the past. And this is a human effect. You can tell that that is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. It, it is just a blanket of constant pollution in certain areas. So, you know, we can we can fix that if we if we, you know, put our minds to it. Well, that's a whole lot of ifs. And it relies on a whole lot of minds in this country that Well, anyway, welcome back to Earth, Commander. For much more on today's stories and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. I'm on the top of the world looking down on creation and the only explanation I can find. Indeed. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to my guest today, Dr. Jonathan Weiler of UNC Chapel Hill, and, of course, as ever, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, please download it for free at bradblog.com. 
or over at iTunes, where we hope you'll give us a good review, make it a little easier for everyone else in the whole wide world to follow us. All right. Uh, oh, and you can follow me on the Twitters and the Facebooks. I am the Brad Blog there. And you can email me. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Hey.